Welcome to On Strategy Showcase. I'm Fergus O'Carroll in Chicago. During our conversation, uh, or my conversation, I should say, with Marcus Collins this week, um, I was struck by the fact that we so many times as strategists tend to, and as as marketers in general, client side and agency side, we tend to uh, spend a lot of time chasing product-based value propositions. And the danger with that is that we risk losing sight of how much influence culture and identity play in our purchase decisions. And when I talk about identity, I mean identity in terms of how we signal who we are or how we want others to think of who we are. And it's everything from the clothes we wear to the car we drive to where we live to where we eat, what we eat, uh, where we buy our groceries, where we go to school. All of these factors, our political attitudes and our affiliations, our religious affiliations, all are signals of status, attitude, or aspiration, and none of them are rational decisions. And uh, I think that we do ourselves a disservice by focusing so much on value propositions that tend to be far more rational. And we miss this bigger opportunity to realize a really strong way in. Now, of course, when, when we, when we ask consumers in research, um, they always attempt to rationalize their purchase decisions. And, and that's many times simply sort of a protective layer to protect their own egos. But their true motivations are not going to come out uh, when you're asking them to Directly. So it's always a kind of a tough thing to test these types of propositions. And that does sort of uh, work against us. Anyway, what fuels all of these sort of emotional drivers is culture. Uh, sometimes it's popular culture. Sometimes it's religious culture. Sometimes it's ethnic culture. Uh, our guest, uh, Marcus Collins, talks about it in two ways. He talks about it as ascribed and subscribed cultures. Ascribed being what we're born into and subscribed being what we choose for ourselves. Uh, his new book is For the Culture, The Power Behind What We Buy, What We Do, and Who We Want to Be. It comes out May 2nd, and it can be, uh, can be pre-ordered now on uh, Amazon. Um, before we get started, as always, you can connect with me on LinkedIn, and you can follow the show on your podcast platform. Just make sure you click the follow uh, button. And if you're a brand whose products or services make the lives of marketers and their marketing agencies easier, become a sponsor of the show, and let's introduce you to this worldwide audience of ours. If you want details about our show, its audience, and the sponsorship opportunities, you can download our sponsor kit from our homepage at onstrategyshowcase.com. Lastly, our travel and tourism series starts next week. We have four episodes. Uh, one is Expedia. We also then have Airbnb. We then have Tourism Iceland and British Airways. So it's going to be a terrific uh, four uh, episode series starting next week. So back to today's show. This is a conversation about culture and its role in the success of your brand with Marcus Collins, professor of marketing at the University of Michigan and also head of strategy at Wyden and Kennedy, New York. Enjoy. We'll be right back. Hello, my name's James Herman, and this is my best Fergus O'Carroll impression. 
But actually, I sound like this, and now that I got your attention, I want you to consider becoming a master of advertising effectiveness, which you can do with me on a six-week online program that'll give you a next-level understanding of how to make advertising that creates consistently better commercial results. Over the past decade, institutions like the IPA, the Ehrenberg Bass Institute, and Walk have used huge evidence bases to uncover what really works and how it works. And now all of that knowledge is yours when you become a master of advertising effectiveness. Our next cohort starts in April. Check it out at mae.academy. That's mae.academy. So welcome, Marcus, to the episode. I've um, um, Once I heard you had written this book, I was like all over it because uh, the subject matter has always fascinated me. As I mentioned to you, we had uh, Douglas Holt on the show. I think it was sometime earlier last year, 2022, uh, on his book, Cultural Strategy. And we had a great conversation. And what I love about your book versus Doug's book is is you see that world differently. And so that's even makes it more exciting for me uh, to understand uh, and hear you talk about your your uh, about your book. We'll we'll uh, the book is called uh, For the Culture: The Power Behind What We Buy, What We Do, and Who We Want to Be. Uh, welcome, Marcus. Thank you so much, Fergus. I'm I'm grateful and uh, a huge fan of Doug Holt. Doug is like a giant in my field, consumer culture theory. Uh, so even just to be to next be next to him uh, is is a blessing. I remember when I started out in this industry, I would hear the term culture and pop culture and and subculture, and and it was I wasn't clear at those early stages of my career what the distinctions were between them. So I'm going to assume that not everybody. Uh, in our listener, uh, in our audience here, understands those distinctions. So I, I thought we could start off by literally, you know, for the purposes of our conversation, how should we define culture? That's a perfect place to start. You know, we have to have language to to talk about a thing with great the great detail. And culture is one of those words that are often used but seldom fully understood, which is a challenge for us because it's so much a part of our daily vernacular. You know, we talk about culture all the time, uh, but we don't necessarily have the right language to to define it. You, know, you ask. 20 people to define culture, you get 50 different answers. <laughs> and that's just because the nature of culture is it's nebulous, it's abstract, right? It's it's intangible and it's all around us. It's like explaining water to a fish. It's hard to to put it to into language. So it's a really great place to start foundationally. And Raymond Williams, who's one of the uh very profound uh cultural scholar, he says that culture's one of the top three hardest words to define. Um, and he's right. So I think about culture through a Durkheimian lens, through Emil Durkheim, one of the founding fathers of sociology, and he talks about culture as a system of values, um, but norms and, and symbols. And these this system demarcates who we are and what's expected of people like us. So it's a, it's a system. And century later, almost, Raymond Williams comes back and talks about, you know, this system, actually a system of systems. And that system of systems of beliefs, artifacts, behaviors, and language helps us see the world and make meaning of the world. So for the purposes of definitions, I would call culture a realized meaning-making system, a system by which we see the world and translate the world. Is there one culture that we can be a part of, or can we be a part of multiple cultures at the same time? 
definitely this plurality in this. And you know, there are many, 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 many cultures. To your point, starting off, there's popular culture, which is you know the generalized sort of adoption of of beliefs artifacts, behaviors, and language among a groups of people. But I could be a part of the popular culture, but also be a Christian and also be an advertiser and also be an academic. And these are different factions of the population that have their own system of beliefs, artifacts, behaviors, and language. So I'm a part of multiple cultures. And the plurality of this uh, becomes a, a a strategy, an identity strategy that I take on to help me make sense of all these things that that make up who I am as an individual. So it's it's interesting to me because particularly as marketers, it becomes an important topic, which is there's two aspects to our identity. There's at least there's two high level aspects to our identities, the ones that we feel are truly ours and the ones that we aspire to. So culture can play a role in both of those those things, that, that it can be a reflection of who you are, or it can be a reflection of how you want other people to see you, right? Certainly, there is there are subs- cultural subscriptions that are ascribed and subscribed, right? Our ascribed cultural subscriptions are that of like our families, right? I am Marcus Collins, it's who I am, right? I didn't choose that, that was given to me. And as a part of the Collins family, there are a set of beliefs, artifacts, behaviors, and language that are normal, that's expected of people like us, that helps us make meaning of the world and navigate how we uh, how we traverse through the through the world. But then there, there's identity that is subscribed that I choose in my own volition to be a part of. Right, I subscribed to be a part of a fraternity called Phi Beta Sigma. I, I I decided to join this organization, and in joining this organization, I now co-opt this organization as a, a as a receipt of my identity, as a way of signaling who I am. And because I self-identify as such, I take on the cultural characteristics of that group of people. Like that's the system of systems. It's anchored in our identity, whether it's ascribed and subscribed. And because of who I am, I take on a set of beliefs and ideologies, right? Truths about the world and stories that I tell myself about the world. And because I see the world a certain way, I now navigate through the world a certain way. I wear certain clothes. I behave a certain way. I talk a certain way. And I consume a certain set of cultural products, television, movies, books, literature, et cetera, that are reflective of those characteristics, that that system. And if my subscribed identity becomes in conflict with my ascribed identity, I find myself in cognitive dissonance, trying to make sense of the world. And so we, as human beings, we're constantly trying to find congruence. And we either anchor ourselves in our ascribed identity, i.e., I'm a Collins, this is what we do, or I say, you know what? I'm more like my subscribed identity, and I only see my family during the holidays. And I try to get out of there as fast as possible. I look at myself throughout the uh, years of my life growing up. I look at my kids as they're growing up, and it it is all. It seems also clear that when it comes to cultural and cultural uh, association, that like a snake might shed its skin as we as we go through different phases of life. We tend to sort of adopt different uh, different tribes that we feel that we belong to. I mean, a classic example might be that somebody who goes from being a single man to being a father, 
That's right. That his uh, his or her associations as a single person versus a parent, the things that you want to be associated with change and the things that you want to dissociate yourself with for whatever reason fall behind. So culture isn't 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 static. It's constantly in motion. One thousand percent. And to your point about being a single man, then becoming a father, my identity changes. As a single yes. man, the expectations are that I go out and about and I date around and I do these things. I have freedom. Like I can exercise myself in a way that is considered acceptable because of how I identify. But once I identify as a father, I go, okay, I'm a father now. Therefore, I should be doing X, Y, and Z because of what my beliefs, ideologies are about fatherhood because the identity I, I end up taking on. Right. And what happens if if you are, if you have, you know, fathered a child, but you are not doing the things that are expected of a father, we call you a deadbeat dad. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You now you now you bear social alienation. You bear the consequences of not being aligned with the cultural expectations of, of a group of people. And I love that idea. I mean, you make you make a really good point. And I mentioned this in, in the book that you know, when your children come of age, they are now. They, they now have more agency in defining who they are and, you know, carving out their, their identity. And college becomes this massive, massive, massive inflection point in our lives for those who do go to university where they bump into people who aren't from their town, who aren't like who they are. They aren't homophilic. Right. They, you know, they, 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 they come from different walks of life. They have different beliefs, different religions. Right. And these different ideas, they bump into them in this massive sea of chaos that we call a university and we get exposed to new ideas. We go, Oh, I never heard that. Never thought about that that way. Oh, that makes a lot of sense. And our worldview begins to change. Our worldview changes. And then we start to navigate the world differently. So then when we come home for Thanksgiving and we hear, you know, our, our, our uncle talk crazy about whatever subject we go, Oh man, I'm not like these people at all. Who am I? <laughs> right. And when our identities don't align, we find ourselves trying to navigate the social consequences of expectations. When we put the marketer's hat on and looking at it through the lens of a marketer, what are the dimensions of culture that interest you the most? Oh, as a marketer, I think the thing I get most excited about is the influence of culture. The influence of culture. I mean, culture is this, this realized meaning-making system that we use to navigate the world is really the governing operating system of humanity, of daily living, right? Where we go, what we buy, how we adorn ourselves, what we drive, what we use, who we marry, if we marry, where we vote, when we vote, uh, uh, how we vacation, what we eat, how we bury the dead. All of these things are byproducts of our cultural subscription. They're governed by what people like me do. And if people like me do something like this, I do it. And if I, they don't, then I don't. As a marketer, my Lord, this is the, the most powerful vehicle that we have. Our job as marketers is about influencing behavior. And there's no force more influential in human behavior than culture, full stop. As a marketer, if I can understand culture, understand the underlying physics of culture, and the system that governs culture, that governs people, then I can harness its power to inform the products I put in the world, the way I communicate it, the means by which, the pipeline by which I get it in the hands of people, uh, and, and, and even the dynamics of how I price it to signal 
potential meaning in the minds of people that will be congruent with their meaning-making frames and will ultimately influence their behavior. So if culture isn't fixed, though, it's constantly fluid and evolving, how, um, how are marketers supposed to find a degree of predictability in culture if, if they tie themselves to it? So that's, that is the, uh, that's the gift and the curse. And the curse. There's no force more influential to behavior than culture, but understanding culture requires a lot of resources. It requires curiosity. It requires intimacy. And that's actually the most powerful part here is that we live in a world where we have more data than ever before, more information than ever before. So we think that we know consumers, we think that we know people. But the, the truth of the matter is that we mistake information for intimacy. And for us to understand the beliefs, the artifacts, behaviors, and language of groups of people, of these tribes, these network communities that we're a part of, it requires radical, radical intimacy. And because the culture is changing, that is, the beliefs change, they evolve. The behaviors change, they evolve. The artifacts change, they evolve. The language changes. Because of these things, we have to be close to it. We have to be intimate and we have to stay proximal to it to understand the changes. You know, uh, 20 years ago, uh, almost 30 years ago now, actually, uh, Sprite told us to obey your thirst. And thirst meant, you know, obey the thing that you were after, the thing that you strive for, the thing that you were passionate about. So when Sprite said, obey your thirst, you go, yeah, totally. I, my thirst is sport. My thirst is music. My thirst is this. Awesome. Great. But then you fast forward to 2012, thirst meant something different. Thirst meant actually you were pathetic, right? So if Sprite tells you to obey your thirst in 2012, you go, oh, I don't want to be thirsty. The language of the community, particularly in the hip hop culture, had shifted. And without understanding how meaning changes, then we find ourselves out of sync with culture. So I would think that probably Nike you being a widening Kennedy man, Nike would be a great example of the ability of a brand if it is focused enough to be able to evolve with the culture uh, of its of the territory, the cultural territory that it occupies. Nike is so great at this because Nike knows who it is. Nike knows how it sees the world. Nike knows its cultural characteristics, its beliefs, artifacts, behaviors, and language. And because Nike knows what it is, who it is as a brand, what it believes, how it sees the world, its conviction, it can find consumers, tribes who see the world similarly, right? Nike believes every human body is an athlete and has held that belief for over 40 years, right? Over 40 years. Every, I mean, Nike believes that every human body is an athlete. And because Nike believes that as a brand, it helps people realize its best athletic self. But that belief in mind, right? That 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 belief sort of anchoring who it is, Nike says, okay, who else out there sees the world the way we do? Athletes or people who want to be athletes, people, not even people who see themselves as human bodies who also are athletes. And then Nike talks to them, engage them through all the nuances of their culture. They talk to footballers one way, talk to soccer players, uh, uh, basketball players one way, swimmers one way, fencers another way, runners another way, right? It talks to them with through the cultural characteristics that govern what it means to be those people and the 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 operating system that informs how they see the world and how they navigate through the world. 
the the point that I've uh, and I've been lucky to have a, a number of people who work in the Nike brand and widen on the show. And the thing that always struck me was the fact that um, I think it was Andy Lindblade who first said this to me. He said that what Nike is, it is the voice of the athlete. And I think that particular, just that sync, that simple statement uh, is, in my opinion, the reason why Nike can shift and evolve culturally through the culture of sport, through the eyes of an athlete, because it's not the voice of the fan. It's not the voice of the product. It's the voice of the athlete. And, and as that changes, you can begin to see through the evolution of the Nike work over the decades that it is able to react to culture. And some people say Nike creates culture, but I think when you think about it as the voice of the athlete, it, it, it I think it removes it from that sort of um, less credible way of creating. I don't think they create it. I think, I think they respond to it in creative ways. I um, think Nike creates cultural product. They create product that is reflective of the cultural characteristics of what it means to be an athlete. And think about athlete through a democratized lens. Like you could be an athlete like me who, who you know, tries to swim as often as I can, but I definitely do not, to an athlete that's on a pedestal like LeBron James, right? It's the spectrum of athleticism that Nike speaks to through, to Andy's point, and Andy's spot on with this, the voice of the athlete. So the marketing communications, the advertising that Nike puts in the world, they're not ads. They are expressions, reflections of the cultural characteristics of what it means to be an athlete, the truths of what it means to be an athlete, right? And when you see it, you go, absolutely. Just like when uh, when hip-hop artists put hip-hop music in the world, you hear it, you go, finally, someone said it. Or just like when Patagonia puts ads in the world of, or, or show up in the world, people who see the world the way Patagonia does go, absolutely, finally, someone said it. Yes. What is being said is a reflection of the cultural characteristics that I subscribe to. And when that happens, people go, that's my kind of brand. And they use the brand to signal their identity, just like we do with our religion, just like we do with our our cultural, our, our, our social affiliations, like fraternities, sororities, schools, organizations, and the like. When I read the book, I was reminded, and it's good to be reminded, about how critical culture is in shaping our decisions. It, it's, it's, it feels like it's a cliche, and it, but it, it is not. I think when you observe people and, and their behaviors, you begin to understand the fact that almost all decisions we make are based upon cultural influences or the way that we expect people to react to us by by possessing that product or wearing that product or driving that particular type of car, we are buying into this sort of cultural um, uh, expectation of what this will say about my identity, and that is that is not a practical decision. That's an emotional decision. One thousand percent. One thousand percent. I mean, we have an illusion of decision making. We have an illusion of agency in the decisions that we make. But there are these forces that are pushed on us, telling us to be normal, pushing us, telling us to dress a certain way, wear your hair a certain way, talk a certain way. Hey, here we do this. We don't do that here. These forces are what's guiding us so that we are standing in solidarity with people like us, 
Emil Durkheim refers to this as collective effervescence, right? He says, you know, that people who subscribe to the same culture act in concert in an effort to promote social solidarity. And we do that where, whether we're aware of it or not. And most of our decisions are made out of sort of these social pressures that are put on us. Yes. And it informs our consumption. It informs what we do. And the more conspicuous the consumption, the more important the cultural congruence becomes. So before we get into some more examples of of cultural of of cultural influences and brands that are that are plugged into culture, let's let's first talk about as marketers listening to the show. Um, you can go one of one of many ways. We're we're suggesting that brands, and in, in essence, your thesis is that sort of true sort of cultural engagement is the most powerful vehicle for influencing behavior. Yeah, I if think that, culture... if that's the case, though, if that's the case, what does that allow me as a marketer to sidestep? What do I need to be doing less of so that I can be doing more of this? That's right. I think that this requires sidestepping the value propositions, sidestepping my razor sharper, my battery lasts longer, my car goes faster, my shampoo gives you more body, whatever that means. <laughs> it, it, it means sidestepping those conventional wisdoms of positioning and value propositions to, to instead focusing on identity congruence, right? And if the thesis is our behaviors are, are governed by our cultural subscription, which is anchored in our identity, then identity congruence between the brands and branded products that we consume become more influential than my razor being sharper. For instance, uh, you know, Bose is a demonstrably better headphone than Beats by Dre, right? You just look at the at the the value propositions. Yeah. The acoustics are better. It just it just is, right? Demonstrably. However, Beats by Dre continues to beat Bose when it comes to market share. Why? Because when I wear Beats by Dre headphones, it says something about who I am. That all that, that always blew my mind to to yeah. realize the percentage, the share of market that Beats headphones have over the competition, and in such a short period of time. I mean, what a perfect example of this. I mean, I think in 2017, Beats by Dre owned 46 percent of the headphone category in the United States. Unbelievable for what people would say is an inferior product, right? That's yes. no shade. That's just looking at the specs. However, I wear Beats by Dre headphones because this isn't about my identity. They, in fact, people were wearing it around their necks, not even listening to music. They were an artifact, right? They became an accessory to my outfit because just like my outfit signals who I am in the world and where I sit in the social stratosphere, this product, which is an electronic product, a consumer product, signals about something about who I am. And that demands a premium. And therefore, those brands do better even though the value propositions are at best, at best parity, right? I mean, look at water. What There is no commodity more ubiquitous than water, right? Depending on where you live in the world, right? I should say it that way, right? But me drinking a Dasani versus drinking liquid death, yeah. this is about who I am. It signals something about, about my identity. And these things, the more conspicuous the consumption becomes, it is the more visible it is, the more powerful the the signal is in my mind, right? Irving Guffman talked about this idea that you know all the world is a stage and we are social actors, 
And because we are social actors on this stage, we decide what character we want to play, our identity. And then we decide the costumery associated with that identity and the scripts, the language, the artifacts associated with that identity. And we govern uh, or we go through the world behaving as such so that our identity and our behaviors are congruent and we find ourselves in cognitive uh, equilibrium. So what does, it, what does it mean to be a brand rooted in culture? Literally, what does that mean? If if I if I buy into this thesis and I want it executed for my brand, what does it require me to do? It requires first identifying what does the brand mean. Now, if we go back to your original questions, which I'm so glad you asked that, you know, what is culture defining as this realized meaning-making system? Because of my identity and the beliefs that I have, I translate the world a certain way. Right. And we can look at the exact same thing and see two different things because of our cultural subscription if our beliefs and ideologies are, are different. Right. So the idea of brand, brand is a signifier. It is a meaning vessel that conjures up thoughts and feelings on behalf of a company, a product, person, or institution. Right. It's a meaning vessel that 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 conjures up affects and cognitions on behalf of a brand, a, I mean, a company, a product person, institution, et cetera. So what a brand needs to have is meaning. What does the brand mean? Now, here's where things get dicey because if we as a marketer don't signal brand in a salient way, signal meaning in a salient way, there's a good chance that what we intend to mean and what it actually means in the minds of people are incongruent. So that, when you when you mean it's not done clearly, do you mean that it's it's not done in a single-minded way or it's clouded or what do you mean in by a that? Compelling way so that it is clear yeah, yeah. what you intend to mean. Right. So and how do we arrive at that? That our our language is consistent, our behaviors are congruent as a brand, our posture is congruent with what we say. Right, the actions and the words align, and it becomes a lot clearer to say, "Oh, when I think of Nike, I think of these things because of what Nike has demonstrated over the years." Right, and, you know, McDonald's, another uh, one of our awesome clients. You know, McDonald's, they they're, they're fans, right, and they're fans talking to fans, and McDonald's entire approach is about celebrating fandom, and we talk to fans like fans, and. That is demonstrated in not only what McDonald's says, but what McDonald's does. So with M McDonald's is a great example because McDonald's being so ubiquitous, uh, almost everybody has had their own unique experience with McDonald's. So you guys were able to sort of plug into that with fan truths, That's right. which was, which was terrific. And we've, we've, we've had tasks on the show and, and it was awesome. It was a great episode. The other side of, of this is something that I read about and a brand like like Jack Daniels, when when Jack Daniels started out, there was this sort of need to sort of dislodge the sort of incumbent ideology. I think is how Doug Holt would talk about it, where where typically whiskeys were all about status, and it was like the organization man back in the fifties, excuse me, fifties and sixties, that in order in order to become a cultural brand was the idea of disrupting that existing ideology in order to offer an alternative. And that's what Jack Daniels did. That's right. Sort of that hillbilly cultural, more authentic craft oriented product versus the status um, sort of um, 
aspirational status proposition that the that the other brands were following. So is this about not only deciding what your brand needs to mean, but is it about disrupting the way the other the others is it is it disrupting culture and creating an alternative? So that's the that's the second step. So the first step is, you know, who are we? What do we believe? How do we see the world, right? What's our conviction? What do we intend to mean in the minds of people? And what do we actually mean in the minds of people? And when those two things are incongruent, <clears throat> like, well, that, that gets to the truth. And when those things are incongruent, we go, okay, so what are we going to subvert? In the, the, the case uh, of, of, uh, of Jack Daniels here, the meaning that was associated with that product category was status, right? It was, it was signaling yes. of where you were. That was the meaning associated with it. So Jack Daniels said, we're going to subvert that meaning. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to usher in a, a different perspective, a different meaning. <clears throat> and the people who see the world the way we do would go, that's my kind of brand. And I will adopt that brand as a way to signal who I am and see this brand differently than I see the category. The category means this, but here's a brand that is antithetical or subcultural, if I may say. To, 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 to this meaning frame. And I go, because I'm not this, I am that. I'm going to use that brand to say who I am in the world. So when you look at, when you look at what happened with Dr. Dre, <clears throat> Beats by Dre, and we look at, um, we look at what Howard Schultz did with Starbucks. We look at what happened with Patagonia. These were brands that started out with sort of arguably visionary individuals yeah. who um who were almost startups how much how much more difficult is it to sort of transition from a traditional uh, brand proposition or a proposition product proposition based brand to a cultural brand when you're already established is it it's got to be a much more difficult journey but is it but, but is it the same journey it's the i say it's difficult in the sense that you have meaning baggage that yes. people already have meaning that they associate to you. <clears throat> and if you want to subvert that, then you have to start breaking some meaning frames, not unlike uh, 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 what Jack Daniels did. You have to, you have to undo sort of the, the meaning that you're trying to, to obfuscate. And, and a great example of this, in, in my mind at least, is, is Dove. You know, for yes, years, yes. Dove was a, a toilet bar, as uh, David Ogre referred to it, right? It was so Yeah, its proposition was purity. Exactly. It was about cleanliness, right? And then, you know, 2009, Dove said, no, 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 that's not what we're all about. Like, like that's what we do. But why that's do we do That's a great example, yeah. In the scientific way. It's like, what do we believe? Like, we believe in, 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 in women. We believe in, in, in self-esteem and empowerment, right? Like, that's what we believe in. And, and if that's what we believe, then what are the, the, the cultural characteristics of what it means to believe in this? And then they very demonstratively communicate that not only in their words, but also in their behaviors. And people said, oh man, exactly. Like I see the world similarly. And as the book talks about, you know, when a brand knows who it is, how it sees the world, it then goes find people who see the world the way they do. The tribes of people, the congregations of people who see the world similarly. And now the brand should go preach the gospel to those people. And then those people become evangelists, advocates, they go preach the gospel on your behalf, not because of who you are, but because of who they are. Are you, as, as in that situation, 
I look at Beats by Dre. I look at the others we mentioned a minute ago. Is uh, there seemed to be a conviction that those brands and products were rooted in, whereas with an example like Dove, my my uh, suspicion is that Dove went out in search of a tribe, in search of a cause, rather than it being necessarily core to their principles. And I'm, and that's not a bad thing to do. It's worked out very well for them. So my question is, do you? If if you're a traditional company and you haven't really, you don't really understand what your mission could be, or or that, or in my opinion, that horrible term we use, purpose these days, yeah, <laughs> um, that it has to be invented. How do you? How are you sure if it's not from your core convictions? How are you sure that your tribe will be large enough to base your business on? Well, I wasn't in the room, so I don't know, but I would venture to say that I think instead of sort of inventing it, I think Dove did some soul searching. They said, like, what do we really believe? Like, what do we really believe? And once they landed on something that already existed, just was not sort of top of mind. It wasn't a part of their practices. It sort of was in the recesses of who they were as, as, a, as a brand. They didn't say, let's tap into that. Another great example of this is REI. You know, our REI yeah. you know, believed that a life full spins, life spent outdoors. And what, 2015, they look at their book of business and they say, you know, hey, what do we believe? We believe life outdoors, life well spent. Okay, great. Then why are our doors open on on Black Friday? And after having that 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 you know that 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 soul searching uh, conversation, they said, if this is what we believe, then all of our actions and our words should be demonstrative of that. And you may say that, well, who who else sees the world that way? It may not be a lot of people, but we're not doing it for the masses. We do it for people who see the world the way we do, and that's where the scale comes. It starts with the small campfire of people. And those people who are around the campfire, who are believers, they go get scale for us. They go preach the gospel. They do the conversions for us, which truthfully, from a segmentation perspective, you know, they're better at influencing people than any marketer is. You think about any show that you've watched in the last couple of years, any movie you watched, it wasn't because of the trailer. It wasn't because of the commercial. It was because people said, hey, are you watching uh, Succession? It's amazing. You ought to be. Have you watching White Lotus? Everyone's talking about White Lotus. And we go, I got to watch this thing because everyone's doing it. <clears throat> it's our want to belong. It's our want for solidarity that influences our behavior because of what people like us do. We're not suggesting, I don't believe you're suggesting either, that you have to abandon your your product features and benefits type of a, of a message in in essence, we're saying you just need to relegate it to not be the dominant message. I mean, there is a, there is a sort of a place, a time and a place for information about a product uh, that yeah. you're a sharper product or your 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 price point message, whatever that might be. But that that is not what is going to uh, win you share. That's right, uh, profitable share. C. We're C. saying Chapman you can do both way. together. Do both yeah. together. CC Chapman says it this way. He says uh, you start with the soul and end with the sale. How do you think about purpose versus cultural strategy? I think they're, they are one and the same, but just really bad nomenclature. <laughs> uh, to your point, you know, we hear purpose-driven, we go, we kind of roll our eyes. Um, and, I, and, I, and I would argue that, you know, brands have always had a purpose. They always have, they've always had purpose. I mean, brands are these signifiers, and their purpose are to conjure up thoughts and feelings on behalf of products, organizations, companies, people, and the like. To get people to move, they have a purpose. The question is, you know, what is that purpose? 
right? And, and the question is, is like, what are the convictions that govern who you are that's going to allow you to conjure up thoughts and feelings? So purpose, right? I mean, I think of, I think of rightly, rightly or wrongly, I think of purpose done wrong tends to suggest that every brand has a role in society, has, has to play a role in society. Yeah, and so. consumers are not buying products because they have a role in society. It, it seems to be a completely different proposition to say that that one is about societal responsibility, corporate social responsibility, uh, versus another, which is creating aspirational experiences or products that I want to associate with my identity. That's right. And if you just focus on one, you lose out on the eighty to ninety percent of the people of the motivations of the majority. 1,000%. This is about identity congruence, right? And if this thing can reverberate to something societal, that's awesome, right? If it can have impact beyond commerce, great, right? But what this, the the antecedent of all of this is about identity congruence. This thing so, is now, well, now explain, I'm, I'm not, explain what congruence is. I don't understand that term. Oh, so congruence is alignment, right? You believe what I believe. So, you know, one of the things I think for, for our audience, our marketers, client side and agency side people, we, particularly the strategy side, loves this idea of being able to work in a space that's far more interesting and rewarding to deal in. The more the brand versus the product attribute side of the, of the, of the ledger, um, but how if we're if we're actually going to be encouraging clients to do this, how do we actually need to be planning differently? Is there a different approach that you're advocating for as a strategist in how you develop a cultural strategy versus an alternative? Yeah, I think that it starts with with intimacy. We we, we have to be intimate with people, not consumers, not you know, machines that eat messages and crap cash, but real human beings. That means we have to set aside our normal way of describing people, our normal way of segmenting through demography. So this is moving away from Gen Z and millennials and uh, you know, uh, uh, age, age, age uh, separations to looking at people by the vehicle they self-identify, their cultural subscription, right? Looking at people as these tribal, these tribal collectives because these tribal collectives become better predictors of their behavior than any generational uh, label that we give them. Right. Right. So if we look at people by their cultural subscription, we go, okay, cool. This is who these people are. Now, what are the cultural characteristics that govern who they are? What are their beliefs, their artifacts, behaviors, and language? And if we understand the cultural subscription, then we can say, okay, how do we as a brand connect with them? How do you identify those tribes initially? Because I, what I what I think you're saying is you you've you've got to find your tribe, you've got to find that community of like minded people. How do you go about that? Versus, do you create your own tribe? So is I it, is, am, it about, is it about plugging into what's already existing, or are you trying to create something? See, I think that you plug into what already exists because these tribes already they're already out there. They 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 already exist. And and I learned this the hard way, honestly. You know, I, uh, I talk about this in the book here. You know, I used to work for Beyonce, and I ran digital strategy for her way back when. And a part of my job was moving her offline fan club online. And then they had Twitter and Facebook in those days to help me do that. And we built this 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 uh, this community. We tried to build this community for her, and it failed miserably. 
And it's like, what's going on? Why, why is this happening? This is Beyonce. She's you know, <laughs> yeah. one of the biggest artists on the planet. Why is this thing really taking off? As we look off of the recesses of, of the internet, we saw this group of people that called themselves the Beehive. And they had, had they, they, they had a community that was thriving. It was super engaging. They had their own set of cultural characteristics to govern what it means to be a part of this community. And they shared the same conviction, the same beliefs as Beyonce. We said to ourselves, oh, this is a problem. We shouldn't be trying to build a community. We should help facilitate that community. And the Beehive became Beyonce's official fan club. The same thing goes with brands. Right, you take a brand like Duracell, who's, who's our client, right? Duracell, they make alkaline batteries. But why do they do that? Right, Because th they believe they've been invested and obsessed with helping people get more. Right, They help me get just, just tinkering more with the alkaline battery will help people get 20 minutes more out of their gaming, maybe 30 minutes more of sleep because their kid stays asleep in their rocker. Right, Obsessed with helping people get more. We just so happen to make, make a battery. But there's people out there who are also obsessed with helping people get more. They're called engineers, DIYers, tinkers, hackers. Those are our people. That's our, our, our community, our congregation, our tribes of people. So as a brand, activating them who see the world the way they do, the way we do rather, they become activists. They become evangelists on behalf of the brand, preach the gospel beyond the value propositions, but what the brand intends to mean. Yeah, I keep thinking about myself as, and I think maybe other strategists listening might be thinking the same way, which is, I can absolutely imagine that most conversations with clients would end up with, well, what what should we represent? That a conversation with a client. Yeah. Can you, as an agency or as a marketing partner, come up with some thought starters? Um, that could be ways for us to begin this journey of of inserting ourselves or or fitting into culture, and I can I can imagine uh, that that would be an absolutely legitimate way to go. My opinion would be that what with Dove, what happened was the agency or a outside research company uh, recognizing what Dove's business was or product was came in with a bunch of different scenarios, and um, they. They through through research and through conversation, um, and some creative expressions, ultimately found one that worked. And I think that's roughly what happened. I think it was David, uh, the Ogilvy affiliate, and I think it was either in Brazil or somewhere that, that came up with that initial idea uh, for Dove. But I, I I can see that happening, and um, and I'm curious is that is that there's there's nothing illegitimate about that. Uh, and the alternative is that it comes from the company. Um, but I think you have to sort of, in finding your niche, you have to go through an entire, I can imagine, discovery process to understand your ways in, because you'll probably have multiple ways in. And I think that the planning process would help do that in the same way that what Tess did for McDonald's was the result of all of that field work where they began to notice that there was these commonalities between people's experiences and everybody had their unique McDonald's experience. It, it, it wasn't that that existed. It was that that was created. And by creating it, it's a fresh moment in culture that the brand can plug into rather than plugging into what already exists. It, sure. Does I mean, that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Just like Taz and the crew did for McDonald's, and as you retell uh, Dove, essentially, they just got closer. They just got intimate. Yes, they, yes. They got very, okay. very, very close, right? For, for McDonald's, 
know, we did an ethnography where we went and talked to real fans, people who self-identify as a fan of McDonald's to understand the truth. And as we got closer to them, we we're able to uncover the truth, right? Through their meaning-making lenses. And the same thing goes with, uh, with Dove as you retell it. This is the truth about people. This is how they see the world. This is what's going on. And I think that uh, the idea of sort of I, coming up with the conviction isn't wrong, isn't inauthentic, as one would say. Yes. I think it's as long as it's real. Exactly right. And, and as I long think as that, I believe it and I say, hey, I, I, that's true. And I'm and I'm invested in that. As long as it's real. I mean, it's just like someone who converts to a religion. Like if I wasn't, if I wasn't a Christian before and I convert to Christianity, doesn't make me any less of a Christian. Now that I am one, I believe it. That's what makes it true. It is Marcus Collins, author of the book uh, For the Culture, The Power Behind What We Buy, What We Do, and Who We Want to Be. The book comes out in April. Is it April, Marcus? May 2nd, but it's, May available, 2nd. But it's available for pre-order right now. And you are also a professor of marketing at the uh, University of Michigan and Absolutely. head of strategy at Wyden and Kennedy, New York. Thank you, man. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. I'm so grateful. This is an awesome, awesome time. And we'll see everybody on the next episode.